Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Hello, you're listening to Nerdette from WBEZ in Chicago. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This week, we talked to author Eric Larson. He's perhaps best known for his book, The Devil in the White City, which is especially well-loved here in Chicago. It tells the parallel stories of this super creepy serial killer and the construction of the world's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. Some people call his work narrative nonfiction, which is a term he takes issue with. We'll talk to him about that. Whatever you want to call it, his books are not dry tomes with lots of boring quotes and exposition. His newest book is called Dead Wake. It's about the sinking of the Lusitania. That's coming up. All that and more this week on Nerdette, because everybody's a little nerdy about something. Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! Nerd! Greta, you and I aren't the only ones who love digging into the history of women who have been overlooked by most traditional history books or documentaries or these kinds of things. And it's always fun when we find a kindred spirit in that pursuit. And Sue Macy is definitely one of them. Sue Macy writes books about women in history for young readers, but her books are a fun, poppy read about history no matter what age you are. We wanted to talk to her a little about one because it's spring, and that is her book about women and cycling. It's called Wheels of Change, How Women Rode the Bicycle to Freedom with a Few Flat Tires Along the Way. I love this title. We all have a few flat tires along the way, don't we? (laughs) This book is set in the 1890s. Which was the bicycle boom in America, and it was very contained. It's when the safety bicycle, which is the, the bike with two wheels of roughly equal size, came into being, and it became easier for women to ride because... The old bikes with the huge front wheel were impossible to ride if you were wearing a skirt or pretty much anything. Um, So the 1890s saw this huge boom in women and men cycling. But at the time, women wore very heavy, very huge garments, skirts down to the floor with lots of petticoats or, or structure underneath, And they quickly found that that wouldn't work on a bicycle. And bicycles were really the fad of the the time. So they started dressing differently. The skirts became shorter. They brought back bloomers, which had been worn by feminists in the 1850s. And were ripe for a comeback. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Although the fashion industry would have disagreed with you. um, Because they were kind of like based on Turkish pantaloons. So they were baggy ankle-length pants, and there was a huge backlash because men felt like if women were wearing pants, how else were they going to enter their sphere? They felt like this is a a, a drastic crossing of the gender barriers. So clothing did change. Bloomers didn't stay popular very long, but the shorter skirts without the 
50 pounds of undergarments finally took over. And that's one way. The other, uh, another thing was that it changed the way men and women socialized because they were on more equal footing. It used to be that when you were a young lady and uh, you had a gentleman caller, you would sit in the parlor with your parents watching and everything was supervised. But now women were out um, riding their bikes without their parents and they could meet whoever they wanted to. And so there was a real freedom in social interactions. It was also the real, the first fitness revolution. Um, women were discouraged from doing anything that was too physically taxing when they became adults. And I have a quote from Frances Willard, who was a suffragist and a feminist of the time, who wrote a book on how she learned to ride the bicycle at age 53, and the book became a bestseller. And she said when, you know, after she was 16, her comfortable clothes were taken from her and, and she was confined to the house to do kind of feminine activities, and and she lamented how terrible that was. So thanks to the bicycle, women finally could become healthier just by this pleasurable activity of riding the bike. So those are some of the ways that life really changed. And Susan B. Anthony famously said, let me tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. So that that's one of the reasons I, I ended up writing the book, because I saw that quote and I thought, there's got to be a story behind this. Like, why is this feminist icon saying it was the bicycle that helped emancipate women or did more than anything else? So there turned out to be quite a story. And, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton also wrote glowingly about bikes, and she editor- wrote editorials for bicycle publications, and it was amazing that the feminists and the cyclists were intertwined. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride it where I live. So just think about the history of feminism, Greta, the next time you're on your bicycle. I certainly will, Tricia. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sue Macy is the author of Wheels of Change, How Women Rode the Bicycle to Freedom with a Few Flat Tires Along the Way. She's written a bunch of other really great books, too. Be sure to check her out. You're listening to Nerdette. Hello, I am Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. This week I talked with Eric Larson. His newest book is called Dead Wake and it's about the Lusitania, the British ocean liner that was torpedoed by a German U-boat in 1915. Who cares about old boats? (laughs) This is a fair question. You know, even Eric Larson says that when he was in high school, the Lusitania was a dry political note on a timeline that he passed over on the way to World War One, And I think that kind of sums it up, right? Old boats. Old boats. And if you've heard of this boat, you probably think it's something that led to World War One, but you probably don't remember the rest like me. I don't remember the rest. Exactly. But Eric Larson knew there was more. Eric Larson knew there was more. He said it was always kind of rattling around in his brain. And he also really loves the romance around ocean travel, which doesn't, I mean, I guess we have cruises, but it's not the same. I 
No, because that's just a shopping mall floating. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I never thought of it that way, but that seems There's a movie theater and a bowling alley and a store and some lobster. Right. It sounds terrible. But there was a point where, I mean, transatlantic (laughs) crossings, the only way you could get from here to there was by boat. And people did it in style. In style. Well, except for the people in steerage. Except for the people who couldn't. But I got to say, for the people who could afford it, this was a beautiful way to cross the ocean. Think huge gilded spaces and beautiful leisure time crossing the Atlantic. And this sort of sense of nostalgia really captured Eric Larson as he was thinking about writing this book. So he looked into it a little bit. And then he realized the centennial was coming up, too. This The boat sank in 1915, and this book came out in 2015. So he decided it was time. One of the things I love about Eric Larson's books, like The Devil in the White City and this one, Dead Wake, is that they're chock full of things from journals and old primary source documents. This is not based on a true story. This is true stories from history that he digs out of journals. Yeah, and that's a really interesting concept. So when I talked to Eric, I asked him how he chose his characters. And he essentially said they choose themselves because they are writing these letters and journals. So I had to know, does he keep a journal? I keep a very detailed journal every time I'm working on a book, in fact, about the process of getting the idea, but also about the process of how the book is going, writing down passages within, and uh, especially of late, sketching things. Oh, <laughs> it's really? Sort of, sort of an odd uh, – anybody who would find one of my journals <laughs> would find sort of an odd melange of things pasted in and, and, uh, and sketches and so forth. And sketching, so, that's something you've done since you were a kid, right? Yeah, I've always loved it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sort of, I don't know why, I'm just kind of getting back into it. I think it's fair to say that those journals of yours are a lot more sophisticated than my seventh grade journals were. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, they're like, to me, I'm really glad that I have those. I'm also terrified of actually looking back at them. Right. And I'm especially terrified at the idea of other people finding them after I'm gone. Uh, yeah, well, uh, well, so you may be interested to hear what one of my daughters said. <laughs> I have, I have three daughters in their 20s, and one of my daughters had said, Dad, you know, you know, after you're gone, these are going to be worth a lot of money. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's when you say you're welcome. <laughs> so does that, like, are you okay with that notion? Do you think about that as you're I'm, writing? I'm not going to be around. Yeah. To, to worry about it. You know, I mean, I would hate it for somebody to come across one of my journals now. Although I, my journals are, I mean, they're just sort of, there's nothing terribly you know, nothing terribly bizarre. Um, it's just that they're a detailed exploration of the soul of a neurotic writer. That's what they are. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. I bet that that sounds like a blockbuster to me. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll publish it someday. <laughs> so you just have it's. Is it like one book? Like this is your dead wake journal? Well, it depends on the, the book at hand. The last book had two journals, and this one may end up having two. And then you have the book tour journal, which is just like all the weird hotel food. <laughs> I keep the, I'm finishing up the the dead wake journal with uh, tour things about. Yeah, I like to keep track of actually the great hotels and great foods. I'm very food oriented. You know, I can you can ask me you know about a trip that I took ten years ago, and all I will remember is the meals. My mother lives in Alaska, and she and a friend of hers, also in Alaska, made plans to visit New York. And they planned the whole thing based on their meals, like the entire trajectory of where they would go and how they would spend the afternoon was based on where they would eat the ice cream. Absolutely. And it was so perfect. I totally get that. I mean, to me, I mean, okay, send me to Rome, fine. But what I'm there for is three meals. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> and, and anything in the interim, I'm just there killing time. Yeah, you know? yeah. So. I like that. I like that very much. So how do you choose the stories that you end up diving into? You know, what's your thought process as you're sort of mulling over, is this worth a whole book? Very difficult to find each new project. I bet. Yeah. It has to, it has to work on a, a lot of different levels for me because, you know, when you're doing this kind of history and people like to call it narrative nonfiction, I don't particularly like that label, but it's as good as anything. But an idea has to have, I mean, for one thing, it has to be interesting to me. That's, uh, you know, step one. <laughs> it's basic. Secondly, it has to have a very rich archival base because you can't fake it with narrative nonfiction. You've got to have the stuff you're going to tell the story. It also has to have a built-in organic narrative arc. That is to say, something fundamental to the story that lends itself to a being retold as a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, that inherent thing. And then also, ideally, that's not necessarily the case with the Lusitania book, but ideally it should have what I refer to as barriers to entry. That's an old business term from my days at the Wall Street Journal, which means that it's complex enough, like The Devil in White City, that I can be pretty assured that no other writer is working on it at the same time as me because I really hate competition, to be honest. So those are the criteria. And finding an idea that hits all those all those bars and in, in a robust way is surprisingly difficult. And I, I, there is no formula. There's no easy way to do it. It's not surprising to me that it's difficult at all. I mean, how many ideas do you think you've mulled over and just decided it can't work? <laughs> how I many? mean, it's got to be the vast majority of things that you consider, oh, right? Yeah. You no, know, I mean, every time I'm looking for an idea, I mean, and I'll end up with 10, 20 possible ideas, um, and I'll, I'll winnow that down maybe to, to five and then maybe down to three, and then, you know, I'm, I'm at the phase where I'm trying to pick between them, and that's really hard. And then I do the old flip a coin routine, but not, <laughs> not, not flipping a coin so that the, you know, the, the side you call is what you do. Flipping a coin, see, this is the neurosis part again. You flip a coin to see how you feel about the outcome of the coin toss, and then you can make a more irrational <laughs> or rational decision. <laughs> but it's hard. Perfect. But it's hard. The, the, thing, the, the odd thing is that by the time I'm done selecting and embarking on a project, and assuming that that project does pan out and it works, it's working, oddly enough, every other idea that I had on my plate at that point dies. It just withers. It's like a, the choice is made, and I will never come back to those prior ideas. Wow. I'll never come back. That's why... The pool of potential ideas gets smaller and smaller as they go along. You seem to even frame your own life story in this series of things that could have gone any which way, but like all ended up with you being right here. At various points, I have tried to let fate take a turn. I do believe in luck, but I believe above all that lucky people put themselves in the way of luck. You know, you've heard the expression, you make your own luck. Mm -hmm. There is luck, but there's also, you know, being out there and being poised for luck to happen to you. Being early, being on time. Being early, being on time. <laughs> be, and, and frankly, in writing, uh, it, it applies to writing as well because, you know, there's no substitute mm -hmm. for you – know, you can wait for inspiration and you'll be waiting, frankly, a long time. But if you're at your desk every morning from, you know, whenever to whenever for at least, you know, three hours a day, seven days a week – good things are going to happen. That bastard inspiration better show up eventually. Yeah, that bastard inspiration is going to show up. But even beyond that, um, you yeah. know, good things will happen because you're putting in the time right. and doing the job. Right. So you said earlier you, you're not super delighted by the term narrative nonfiction. Right. Would you call it something else if you could? Or have you, you seem kind of... I don't want it to be called anything. 
I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know why. Like just there, a really good book. Yeah, a really good book. Yeah, I, I don't know why there has to be a label narrative nonfiction, or some people call it immersion journalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst thing that was ever applied to this kind of thing, and I, I, I do not apply this to my books, but is often applied to uh, Truman Capote's uh, In Cold Blood. He called it himself, he called it a nonfiction novel. And mm-hmm. I, I believe he meant something very, very different than what I do. I mean, my books are nonfiction right, books. It's not, right. They're not based on facts, but they are facts, you know. And the idea of narrative nonfiction, um, all nonfiction should be narrative. Right. I mean, yeah. Essentially, nonfiction still is a narrative just as much as anything else is. Well, it should be. Yeah. should be. I mean, yeah. I don't know why anybody would tell historical stories any differently. So I guess right. that's why I, I kind of block it. I block it labels, period. You know, somebody's a romance writer or, or, or one of the most horrible labels applied to anything is like chiclet. You know, oh, yeah, chiclet. that's like, bad. Like so dismissively. What's, what's chiclet? Yeah, I when mean, you said that, I thought of those weird little gums. <laughs> well, little chiclet little literature about gum. <laughs> gum is a very small genre. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering, too, you know, especially when it comes to the Lusitania, it ties into, I think, a lot of the romanticism around the Titanic and these huge, beautiful spaces. Yeah. And it gets me thinking a lot about nostalgia in general. And I was curious, I mean, you must have such an interesting relationship with nostalgia being someone who's constantly poring over historical documents. Well, Some no, people <clears throat> think of it as like this really horrible self-indulgent thing. I was curious what you think <laughs> I love sinking no pun intended, sinking, <laughs> sinking into the past. You know, I mean, I love trying to conjure a sense of what it would have been like to be, you know, for example, the day of departure, leaving New York on this amazing ship. You know, what was that like? It's not nostalgia. I suppose nostalgia plays into it. I keep thinking of, you know, the, the Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris. But mm. in my case, it's about immersing yourself deeply enough to pass that you get a real sense of what it might have been like in that day that you're writing about when you're aboard ship, when you're having some fabulous meal on the Lusitania halfway through the voyage. And it's very it's very powerful and also very necessary to get to the point where you, things start to come alive for you. That's but I don't fair. think that's nostalgia necessarily. Yeah, I don't know. I guess my definition of nostalgia ends up being that sense of it can never be the same. Or maybe wanting it to be the same, but right. knowing it can never be right. the same. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, of course, there's some of that. I mean, I would love it to be the case that we go back to ocean liners instead of jet liners, and suddenly you know, the maritime world comes alive in the same way that it did once upon a time with you know wharves all up and down the Hudson River in New York and the whole deal. But then, of course, you realize, uh, you know, well, you know, it's like, okay, what comes with that? I mean, if you actually went back in time, as in the Woody Allen film, it's like, well, you know, you wouldn't have antibiotics. <laughs> so, right, right, exactly. We have made advances so, yeah, in some yeah. ways. But I don't mind. I don't mind though that if people, frankly, want to break from today, from modernity, that hey, go grab one of my books, and because you know, ideally, it will put you back in the past, and I think you'll come out of it with a sense of having lived in the past, and um, maybe that's not such a bad thing. If you did have a time travel machine. Would you for sure go into the past or would you consider the future? <laughs> I think I'm sure I go, you get asked that all the time. <laughs> no, I've never been asked about the, uh, about the future. <laughs> um, I would not want to uh, know anything about the future, frankly. Yeah, I don't. I'll take each day as it comes. But as for in the past, I would want to go back. You need to add something to that, and that is go back in the past fully aware that I'd be safe. Okay. That's an important okay. ingredient, okay? Yeah, that's fair. I would want to go back to the period in Germany that I write about in The Garden of Beasts. 
that period when Hitler was on the rise in Berlin. I'd want to be living in Berlin. I'd want to be living. I'd want to be dating Martha Dodd, you know, who's one of the characters in the, my book, In the Garden of Beasts. But I'd want to go back to that period because I, I just find it so creepy. Hmm. And I just want to know what we would feel, what I would feel. Where would I come down on the whole thing? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of creepy. So I'd really like to go back to that period. Eric Larson is the author of Dead Wake. Check it out and his other books as well. You know, you're talking to a good nerd where you try to talk about time travel and the first thing they do is set up some rules for the time travel. (laughs) Exactly. That's the way you have to do that. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and I love, too, that idea of flipping a coin not to actually determine which one, but to see how you feel about whatever the outcome would be. I think it's a beautiful thing. Still to come, we get homework from a listener in Sweden and hear your nerd confessions. Stay with us. This week comes from Sweden. This is very exciting. A transatlantic homework. <laughs> Good one, Trisha. Hi, this is Elin from Sweden. And I just want to say that in the last episode, I was really happy to hear the writer of Welcome to Nightvale recommend Roy Anderson, the Swedish filmmaker. He's really great. And I hope a lot of you watch his movies. And uh, the other writer recommended that you should read books from other countries in America. And I have a really great Swedish tip for you and that is to check out the Engelfors trilogy. It's written by Mats Stramberg and uh, Sara Bergmark Elfgren. The first book is called The Circle and it's really great. It's about a group of young girls in a small town in Sweden that discover they have magical powers and they have to stop the apocalypse. It's inspired a lot by Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Twin Peaks and it's really great. It's got some great female heroes and it's got good representation and I really think that Nerdette listeners will like it. So that's all for me. Bye. Trisha, I got to say, I already ordered this book off of Amazon. You did? I did. It was very exciting to get this recommendation from a listener. I will have to borrow that from you after you read it. That's The Circle, the Engelfors trilogy. And you can find links to that and all your homework at nerdettepodcast.com. We also got a nerd confession from a lovely book nerd from San Diego. Hi, Nerdette. This is Elizabeth, and I am calling in with my nerd confession. Well, it's actually a nerd confession for both me and my husband. We were getting married in 2006, and in the middle of wedding planning, we found out about an event that was going on in New York City, which was an evening with Harry Carey and Garp. And uh, that was with authors J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, and John Irving. And they were all reading excerpts from their books, and then at the end of the readings, they had a question and answer time. And so even though we were in the middle of wedding planning and doing all of that, we decided that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity that we simply could not miss. So we took the money that we had saved for our honeymoon and bought tickets to fly from San Diego to New York to go to this evening at Radio City Music Hall. And we wound up sleeping on the floor of our friend's apartment in Hell's Kitchen in the middle of a heat wave with no air conditioning, but... It was all worth it. We got to be there in the room when J.K. Rowling announced that Dumbledore had actually died at the end of Half-Blood Prince. So that was definitely one of our favorite nerdy moments of our life. 
And this is coming from a couple where my husband works for Comic-Con here in San Diego. So it was definitely worth it. We never did take a proper honeymoon, but it was totally fine by us. I hope you ladies have a great day. Bye. That sounds like the best pre-honeymoon trip ever. It really does. And speaking of how things sound, Elizabeth is one of those really clever people who just recorded herself on her iPhone and emailed us the audio file of her nerd confession. This is something that you, dear nerd, can also do. It's super easy. There's a little voice memos app on your phone or some equivalent if you don't have an iPhone. And yeah, you can just record it yourself. Make sure it sounds as good as you want it to. And then email it to us at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can, of course, always call and leave a voicemail. That number is 312-600-5638. The important thing is, is that you tell us your nerd confessions. We need to hear about the times when you were at your absolute nerdiest, from epic fails to humble brags, whatever that moment was when extreme enthusiasm had a pretty memorable result in your life. We want to hear about it. Yeah, also call to suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile or tell us about a really amazing Swedish trilogy that involves maybe Buffy the Vampire Slayer-esque things. Whatever it is, let us know about it. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Eric Larson and Sue Macy for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into our Game of Thrones recaps with Peter Segel. Next week on Nerdette, Bitch Magazine's Sarah Merck. I decided that since there wasn't a book that I wanted to read, I, I should make one about dating. And really the idea behind it was to talk to people who are older than me and smarter than me and have done more thinking about this than me, about what they've learned the hard way in relationships and glean all of their knowledge and collect it into a book that could really be a resource for people like me who are trying to figure things out. That's Sarah Merck of Bitch Magazine, the author of Sex from Scratch, next week on Nerdette. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from WBEZ's amazing Joe Dassault and his squire, Brad Helm. You can find links to all the things, our email newsletter, homework, some other stuff we like on the internet at nerdatpodcast.com. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you're already listening to us. But we would appreciate it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Dive in, man. Dive in. We share links to things we love on Facebook, which you can see if you like us there. And we're on Twitter at nerdatpodcast. We're also at nerdatpodcast on Instagram, which is where I write pocket-sized book reviews. Teeny tiny book reviews. There's a little one of Dead Wake on there today. Check it out. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Throw us some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent Alaskan in D.C. did on iTunes. Greta, Aww. what are the odds that you know Alaskan in D.C.? I think Alaskan in D.C. is my baby brother. Aww, my that's big little so brother. Nice. It's really nice. You can leave us a review even if you're not biologically related to it. It's that's true. cool. Thanks, Mom. It's one big nerd ad family. <laughs> There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or you work for one that wants to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite the show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. <laughs> Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.